In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient and education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps, inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Poznanski. And uh, for those of you who listen to this show with some regularity, uh, first of all, I, I don't I don't know why you do that, but but thank you for doing that. Uh, you know that this show is mostly well entirely meaningless. It's about meaninglessness. That's sort of the whole point of this show. But uh I don't know. This week didn't feel like a meaningless week. This feel this week feels like there's real things to talk about, important things to talk about, uh, in and out of baseball. And so I brought a couple of really good friends with me, uh, to join the show, to talk about, uh, some of those things. Uh, first, uh, I want to, uh, want to welcome one of my dearest friends and, uh, well, my brother, really, uh, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick. Bob, welcome. Joe, thanks, man. It's great to catch up again, and thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming on. And we are joined by a friend of both of ours, uh, of, of one of our favorite people in the world, uh, the general manager of the Kansas City Royals, Dayton Moore. Dayton, welcome. Thanks, Paz. Appreciate being on with you and Bob, and um, hope everybody's doing well. Yeah, it's all, it's all. we're all trying, right? We're all trying to... To do well, so let's get a little bit of business out of the way before we sort of dive into to some topics here. Um, first of all, Bob, tell us a little bit about the museum, where it stands. You guys had to close, like like everybody did. Where, where are you guys right now at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum? Yeah, Joe, you're right. We officially shut down March 14th, and so it, it's been a challenging time for us. Number one, it's been difficult for me because I've never had this much downtime in my life. <laughs> and, and so I literally, I was literally going crazy. And as I told you, my only saving grace was they opened up the golf courses again. <laughs> and so I could at least go frustrate myself in, in the midst of my frustration of the museum being closed. Uh, but we're looking at reopening, a phased-in reopening on June 16th. And, and so uh, our team is frantically working now, making sure that we've got the, the protocols and guidelines and benchmarks in place for a safe opening for our staff as well as our patrons, you know, as we hopefully get people to come back and enjoy the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And, you know, I don't have to tell you, and, and Dayton is aware of this as well, this was such a big year yeah. for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And with this being the 100th anniversary 
of the birth of the Negro Leagues and all the work that we had put in to put together what we thought was a great plan for a year-long centennial celebration. And, and as you both know, we got off to a flying start, man, you know, commemorating the anniversary on February 13th. Joe, you were here for that. And yep. the commissioner of Major League Baseball and, of course, our, our great new owner, John Sherman, and all the other distinguished guests who joined me on February 13th, 100 years from the date that the Negro Leagues were signed into existence and in the very space in which that happened. And the announcement and everything with the million-dollar contribution from Major League Baseball and the Players Association, and we're off to a flying start. And then less than a month later, everything comes to a screeching halt. Yeah. So yeah, it knocks a little bit of the wind out of your sail because, again, you know, the disappointment in not seeing this plan really come to fruition the way that we all wanted it to. But as I've shared with many others, you cannot be a steward of this story and wallow in self-pity. Mm. You just can't do it. You know, and as you well know, the players in the Negro Leagues never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. And I think it is in common that me and my team, and it starts with me trying to exemplify that spirit and embrace by our team that we have to carry that same spirit. And, and to use a bad baseball analogy, you know, that big right-handed that knocked us down. Yeah, we he threw one high and tight. And, <laughs> and we got to get back in the batter's box, shake off, dust off, and, and try to figure out a way to hit him. And, and I think that's the mindset that we have. So we're looking forward to reopening. We've got plan B in place as we look at the celebration over, you know, by and large. And, and, and hopefully 2021, we'll see a lot of these things that we wanted to do this year kind of take place. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look around the country and 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 see so many plans, you know, that were that were changed and foiled and stopped. And but but it is it is important, I think, for people to know just how critical and important a year this was for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and still is, yeah. although it's it's going to extend out because you know, Bob, you and I, we've we've had hundreds of discussions about this. It's hard to have a museum going and and vibrant in in these times. It's very very difficult, and and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum has has had its 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 ups. Uh, it's had some very very dark times and and downs, and and it has really stormed back over the last few years, and and is in wonderful shape. And then here was the year that. That yeah. I think you and I talked about it just becoming, yeah. it was yeah. going to be, this was going to be a year that was going to make it, you know, in perpetuity, basically. And, and, and that's what, that's exactly what we were hoping for. Yeah. And that's why we were so, you know, the planning, a year of planning, and now it's execution time. And, you know, I know Dayton knows all about this. You got a great <laughs> game plan. You yep. got to execute that game plan. And, and so, you know, we were excited about it, though. And And you're right. This was going to be the thing that I thought, was going to propel the museum into perpetuity. And for me, you know, and I don't know how much longer I'm going to do this. Uh, I enjoy it. I, I love the team that I work with. I love all the people that I work with. And, and, and hopefully God will continue to bless me with, with good health and I'll be able to do this, you know, as, but at some point in time, I'm going to walk away from this. And, but for me, it drives me to make sure that whomever comes after me 
hopefully won't have to work as hard as I did. And, and uh, it will be in such a great place. You know, the only thing they'll have to do is not mess it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, nobody's going to work as hard as you do, Bob. Nobody, yeah. Nobody's going to do that. But you know, what's really, what's really interesting is, honestly, Dayton, you and I have had very similar conversations about the Royals and, and what you sort of felt your job as a steward was when you took over this team. I mean, I've heard you say that. Talk about, you know, the person who comes after you having having a different, you know, organization and a different, you know, job uh, than you did when you first came in. Well, I think I think Bob said it so well. And uh, I just, and Paz, you and I know this, I always just so encouraged uh, when you interact with Bob and you hear him speak and, and yes. talk about different things and his outlook on life and and uh, he, he's really one of the more balanced and positive leaders that, that I've uh, witnessed and, and been around. And he's um, just a credit to our entire community. And, and he's 100% right. I mean, and that's all you're really trying to do in life is make things better, um, leave them better for somebody else. And so they can actually uh, take what you have done and, and then improve upon that. And, sure. uh, and that's one of the things that I think is burdening us and, and gives us more a sense of urgency right now with some of the things that are happening in our country. Because I think when we look in the mirror, we have to ask ourselves, are we doing it better? Um, what type of community and, and country are, are we leaving for our children and our grandchildren? And so I, I really believe that, you know, we've always kind of seen uh, some of the injustice, and, and we understand that sometimes people in authority uh, perhaps have abused their power. We've seen that. But I think for one of the first times in my life, I think there's more people's hearts have felt it. And, yeah. and I, think that's, I think that's really important. And that's why um, it's important to have these conversations. We all understand what uh, the Negro Leagues Museum, the spirit of the Negro Leagues Museum, and what those players and those athletes and those families experience. And I often think about that. Yes, we talk a lot about the players and we should, and we celebrate them, but you know, their families and what did, what, what were their children thinking when they saw their father uh, not getting opportunities and, and how did their father deal with those types of things? And so yeah. there's, it's much richer than, and it's such a, that's why I tell our players all the time. I've told our African-American athletes, I really believe the African-American uh, is more equipped uh, for leadership uh, than anybody else. The challenges that they've had to face, the positivity in which they've done that, the perseverance and, and so forth. And I've shared that with our African-American players and our African-American coaches and staff uh, over the last 10 days. And uh it's uh, but to listen to Bob talk, it fires me up, it makes me feel good about our country and um, and our future. Well, I know I know, Bob, you've got to be thinking, I mean, because you and and I have seen this numerous times and, and never more so than than is happening right now. This is exactly the time you want the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to be open. This is exactly the time with everything that's going on with Black Lives Matters, with these with the protests, with 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 the. Uh, this this hunger for justice this is what the negro leagues baseball museum stands for and this is i mean i think you've said this before this is when you guys can do some of your best work oh there's no doubt in my mind joe 
I, I was sharing uh, before I got on with you guys, I was on with Joel Goldberg doing uh, his, his show and we talked about just that. I honestly, guys, believe, and I believe this before the George Floyd incident because I was seeing some of these things that we thought we had moved beyond continually rear his head over the last X number of years. Sure. And, and I always felt that the Negro Leagues Museum was more important now yeah. than ever before. And, and we're in our 30th year of operations. And, and I do believe just that because we've seen this renewed level of hate kind of re-emerge in our society. Now, maybe it was there all the time. And it was just lying dormant and maybe people feel more emboldened than ever before to express it. And, and that was alarming. And I thought it was alarming to a lot of young people in particular. And, and so it makes a cultural institution like the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum that much more significant for the very, very reasons that you mentioned. This is a museum about social injustice. It is a museum about civil rights, because as much as it's a baseball story, it is a civil rights story. But it's also an important story of triumph over that adversity. Mm -hmm. and, and so as we look at these struggles, I think it's an inherently important that you see me in all lights. I don't want you to just see my struggles. I think you need to see my successes and my triumphs. And Joe, as you know, the Negro Leagues is one of those great stories of triumph. It, it is that story of rising above whatever the circumstances were. So to simplify it, you won't let me play with you, then I'll just create my own. Mm -hmm. Which is in essence, the American way. So it is the American spirit at her absolute finest. And, and I think those underlying stories and messages that stem from this story that is essentially these incredible athletes who just needed a form to express themselves, it is so transcending in nature. And, and the life lessons that come from the Negro Leagues, from the story of the Negro Leagues, can be very much utilized uh, to help invoke this change that we want to see take place, you know, as we continue to to try and grow our society. Yeah, it's a it's a hundred percent right. I mean, for somebody, you know, Dayton's been to the museum many times, and and I know that your players have gone, and you've encouraged them to go. If you if you've never been to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, first of all, I couldn't more highly recommend it. If you're in Kansas City, go. If you're not in Kansas City and don't plan to be, to join and be a part of it. We're talking about what we, you talk about this, this period of time, 50 plus years, but say 50 years where white supremacy ruled baseball and, and there was no arguments. There was no way to, to fight it. I mean, there were, you know, the people tried, but you had these players and it was hopeless for these players in the twenties and thirties and early forties. The idea of, 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 you know, Buck O'Neill used to say it all the time. He never even thought about the major leagues. It was, it was an impossibility. And yet they continued to play. They played at such an extraordinarily high level that we still think of them as some of the greatest players who ever played the game. And at such an extraordinarily high level that eventually it grew absurd to enough people 
that there were not African-Americans in the major leagues. The, the people realized what they were missing when they saw Jackie Robinson step out there for the first time, when they saw Larry Doby step out there for the first time. And then within a very short period of time, when they saw Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer, Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente and Frank Robinson and Ernie Banks and on and on and on. And you think about the richness of what the Negro Leagues was, and this was their one way to fight back. And, and, and I think that is what makes it so awe-inspiring and so compelling, you know, because what they were able to do was forge a glorious history in the midst of an inglorious time in American history. And, and, and really, Joe, they didn't know they were making history. They didn't care about making history. Nope. They just wanted to play ball. They, they just wanted to play ball, but again, the passion and the pride and the perseverance, the determination that they demonstrated are the same kind of transcending things that we're going to need today. I was telling, I had the great pleasure, Dayton, of sitting down last week with six young African-American major leaguers. So including, of course, uh, our very own Lorenzo Cain. Uh, who uh, I just love dearly, uh, Delino DeShields. Uh, we had Michael Givens from Baltimore, Taylor Hearns from over in Texas, Josh Bell from the Pirates, and Dwight Smith also over at Baltimore. And we were talking about this whole issue of baseball and race in America. And, and for those young folks, this is really the first time that they've experienced this kind of upheaval, mm -hmm. racial upheaval. You know, I'm sure they were aware, obviously, because you have to be almost, you know, oblivious to know that racism wasn't occurring. But this level is, is new to all of them. And, and for them to have a very candid conversation about that very subject matter uh, was so very interesting. And their their thoughts and their ideas and the impact and their willingness to use their voices collectively to make change struck me uh, as very genuine. And, and the fact that they were all so moved by this, but it also lets me know, again, uh, it just, for me, quantified why this museum is so important. Yeah. And they have such a rich legacy in this game and their ancestors were having to endure some of these things that we're talking about today. It's, it's it's really incredible. It's really incredible. Dayton, it's been a big part of your mission in baseball. And I, and I want to talk about this uh, at, at greater length a little bit later, but, but speak, speaking specifically about what we're talking about now, one of your great missions has been to bring baseball into the African-American communities. And, and, and I know that it hurts you to see, um, you know, to see that, that, participation fall. I mean, there are, there are places rising again with, with young people, which is exciting to see, but in the major leagues, we've seen that fall. Uh, I know it's really important to you. What, what can be done? What is being done? What, what do you see when you, when you think about baseball uh, and African-Americans? Well, you're right. It's, it's, it's painful it, and it's painful to a lot of us really. And, um, for, for one, we, we want to see every young boy, every young girl aspire to love this game, to want to play this game, because we yeah. believe so much in the leadership lessons that it that it teaches and prepares our young people for in the future. And 
you know, I, I was JJ Piccolo and I um, were privileged to to study under uh, an individual by the name of um, Dr. David Wiggins, and 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 Dr. Wiggins actually played baseball for uh, San Diego State under the legendary coach Jim Dietz. Mm-hmm. And he was a professor at George Mason University, and he taught a class on the the influence of the African-American athlete in American society. And he was a baseball guy. And so and he was he was very inviting. And um, we spent a lot of time with him. We discussed issues of this nature um, for the very first time. I became uh, more passionate about it. And then, of course, we had an opportunity to. Uh, worked for the Atlanta Braves, and, and when I joined the Atlanta Braves front office, uh, I quickly understood and, and recognized uh, who Bill Lucas was, the first African-American general manager. Paul Snyder, who was my mentor, spoke about him, um, seemed like on a daily basis about different things. And then, of course, Hank Aaron was involved with the Atlanta Braves and, and so forth. So we've always had uh, a, a passion for the African-American athlete. And, um, and, and one of the things that I've always admired, and, and I, I saw this and experienced this the first time I went to an African-American church to worship, just the spirit, the loving um, way in which people interacted with one another, the passion they had for life, and it just captivated me. And uh, we, we need those types of individuals in our game to grow our game. And we know how important diversity is. And the strongest leaders are simply strong because of the strength of others. And they need to recognize we're all different by design. That's how we are made. And um, and so it's, it's always been a passion of ours. Um, when I was an area scout, Paz, I used to love, I used to love running tryout camps. I love being on the field. Um, and I'd run those tryout camps in the middle of Washington, DC. My colleagues thought I was nuts. Um, I would run them in the, in downtown Philadelphia. My colleagues thought I was nuts. I would go to rural West Virginia and, and Virginia and, um, and Maryland. And, um, and cause I wanted to attract the African-American athlete, uh, to our game. I, I, I love their athleticism. I love their intellect. I love their, their, just their, their team, their team first type attitude. Um, they have so much fun. And so I was always just attracted, um, uh, you know, to the African-American athlete and, uh, and so forth. You know, when my father, when my father passed away, um, one of the things that really made me feel good, um, before his body, uh, was removed from the hospital room, there was two men that showed up, um, his boss and his best friend who, uh, was an African-American gentleman. And so, and who my father actually uh, supervised and, um, and they were friends and they had lunch together and he was over at the house. And, and, um, and so we were just raised uh, in a way to, um, you know, to, to love one another, if you will. And, you know, after when, when the George Floyd uh, incident occurred, I, I made the following notes to remind myself um, uh, the next morning in my quiet time, I wrote down the following words. I said, Dayton, remember to love your neighbors yourself. Dayton, model the behavior you'd like to see in your family, in your community, in your country. And then I wrote this, racism is good versus evil. It's not black versus white, it's good versus evil. 
And so I hadn't reminded myself of that uh, in a while. And so those I've been reading those those statements, those notes to myself every single day since then. And as I mentioned before, we have seen people in authority abuse their power, abuse their authority. And I think that I have um, I, I have not used my my authority as well. I need to be more responsible. I need to understand more. We pride ourselves with the Kansas City Royals, with culture simulation programs. In fact, they're ranked one or two every single year. Jeff Diskin and Matt Morosco do an amazing job as they assimilate our Latino players into our country, into our culture. And that's an admirable thing to do. We need to continue to do that really well. But it, it, after speaking to some of our African-American players and, and coaches, I realized, you know what? We haven't done enough um, listening to their stories. And pause, what you do as well as anybody on this planet is you have the ability to tell the stories of others. Bob is an amazing storyteller as well. But the stories of those who have been oppressed, the story of those who have been neglected, the story of those who have been disadvantaged and taken advantage of, those stories need to be told. They have to be told. If we have a heart for the next generation, if we're in leadership and we believe leadership begins and ends with putting others first, which I think all three of us recognize that and understand that and appreciate that. But if that is truly the case, we need to have those stories be told and we need our the next generation to understand that so we can all do better because we all want our children and our grandchildren to grow up in a better place, just like Bob is leaving the Negro Leagues a better in, a, in, a, in better hands in the future. And we're hopefully doing that here with the Royals and, and baseball. Uh, we just need to continue to fight for what is right. And we can never grow tired or weary in doing just that. Well, that's that's right. And and that leads to. To one more question about about uh, about all of this, I mean, and, and I'll direct it first to you, Bob, but you look around the country and and we are in the midst of something really extraordinary for our life. We're about the same age and 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 Dayton you're about our age too. We're all about the same age. This is really something extraordinary in our lifetime. It's a moment. Uh it's a it's a you know there's a lot else going on with COVID-19 and with the economy and and so many people out of out of work and all of those things. We are we are in an extraordinary moment, and and you see so many you know hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the country, out in the streets protesting, uh, pushing for a better America, for a, for for justice, and and what role do sports play in that? I mean, you know, when, I, I think everybody is looking around to the different leagues to, to, to make statements. Some are better than others, to be honest, but, but everybody's talking about it. Uh, certainly uh, black athletes have, have been on the forefront of that, but, but white athletes have, have spoken out as well. When you look at this, Bob, you know, what do you think of sports role in, in, in what's happening right now? Well, I, I think it's going to play a pivotal role. And again, Joe, as I shared with the young guys last week, protesting and activism is hard. Yeah. It makes you tired, mm. but we can't get tired. We cannot be tired. 
we 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 have to keep on pressing on at this is what I think is a watershed moment in this country's history because of the vile and vivid way in which this was seen it opened a lot of eyes that may have been closed yeah. uh, to this particular issue in our society. And, and as a kid growing up in the 60s in rural Georgia, as you well know. I do. Georgia, as a kid growing <laughs> up in the 60s, you know, I'm, I'm so young when, when Dr. King was assassinated. Yeah. But my brother was an organizer for King's marches in that town. And, and I remember marching with my family. And at that time, you, you're just too young. It doesn't resonate. It doesn't register as it does now, you know, years later when I'm old enough to really comprehend what that was all about, and particularly after his assassination. And, and here we go. Where we fast forward to, to 2020. And, and for me, working in an environment where I understand the impact that the Negro Leagues had in leading the social advancement of this country. I, I've seen through the lens of sports the impact that it can have. Yeah. And for athletes from all disciplines using their voices to try and create a better tomorrow. I think Dayton talked about that. You know, we want to leave this place better than what we found it. And I think it's really important. Yeah. And yeah, it, it is that platform. They have a platform. And you know, athlete, the, the world of sports, and particularly baseball, which has been at the forefront, but the world of sports in general is the one place in our society where the rules don't really change. Mm -hmm. You know, in our sport, it's still three strikes, you out, four balls, you take your base. And, and I think when the rules are clear and apparent, we can all be successful. It's when the, when the rules have a tendency to shift yeah. is that when, when things get to be so difficult for folks. Because the finish line sometimes moves for those uh, of a different color, you know. Uh, you you're running a hundred a uh, hundred meter dash, but then in the middle of the race, they said, "No, it's 120 meters now." <laughs> you know, and for and you, so, for yeah, you, for it's 120 yeah, meters. It's yeah. 120 yeah. meters. You know, and so you feel like you're always playing catch up, and but collectively, the sports world has an opportunity because their platforms are so large, and because of the respect that people give these athletes because we admire what they do. But what we're finding is that these young people, these athletes, uh, they're more than just athletes. They're human beings. They're citizens. They have concerns. They have cares. And, and for them to be able to voice, and, and we talked about this a lot last week, because in baseball, you don't have as many African-Americans in the sport. Mm -hmm. and, and man, I tell you guys, guys, I was so moved by Joey Votto's op-ed piece yes. in the Cincinnati Inquirer. Uh, it, it was so well thought. It was beautifully written. And it cannot just be African-American voices though in sports to have the impact that we want it to have. It has to be a collective group of voices in this world of sports. Because in some ways, we almost expect that the African-American athlete is going to take this charge on. But when we want to see the change that we all hope to see, we're going to have to have people who don't, who are not of African-American descent right in line. And I think that is what we're seeing. And that's what gives me the hope 
that this change that we are looking forward to occurring will indeed occur. Now, that, of course, you know, that's that's that old optimism. Uh, maybe that's some spillover uh, from Buck. That's um, Buck. Yeah, that's Buck. Yeah, you know, I think it is. That's okay. That's okay. I'm glad it spilled over. Uh, but I really believe it. And, and that's what I think we're seeing here, you know, in such a compelling way for the first time in many, many years. I don't think there's any question. I mean, how many people have asked you what Buck O'Neill would be saying right now? I mean, that's, you know, then he would be optimistic. I mean, that's, that was, it was, that was, he and optimism were synonymous, you know, and, and that's that he never, ever wasn't optimistic. You know, I want to, he never wavered from that. He never, never wavered, never wavered ever. Uh, I want to say something about really quickly about the Joey Votto thing. Um, I think what was so, so good about it. And so, and I, and I told him this, I, I texted him, uh, Joey has been here on the show before. And, and I told him this, it was so clearly from the heart. I I think that's all anybody's asking is, is open your heart and listen and try to learn and try to try to be empathetic and, and understand what other people are thinking. You know, I mean, it's, 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 that's what, that's what matters. And that's what mattered to me in that piece. It wasn't like, it wasn't like Joey Votto broke ground that, that hadn't been broken before. It, 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 that's not what it was about. It was about somebody really coming face to face with, with an understanding that he didn't understand, you know? And I, I just thought that was, that was very powerful. Yeah, it it was. I I mean, I just, I mean, when I read it, somebody had tagged me in a Twitter post and and I sat there and I read it and you could, what you're talking about and what you're saying, Joe, you could feel it. Yeah, This exactly. was from the heart because he, he admittedly had those who he called friends yep. who had been saying this stuff and you could tell it was almost kind of a little bit dismissed. And even to the point where they sent him the video, he didn't even want to watch it. Yep. And then you watch the video. And mm-hmm. the awakening occurred. Mm-hmm. And, but then also the commitment, you know, to do exactly what you said, to listen, to learn, and then hopefully be part of the solution. Yeah, exactly. Dayton, mm-hmm. what do you think is is sort of the sports role in in all of this? Well, pause. Let me say this, and Bob's points are right on, and and um, Bob's Bob's more optimistic than I am. Huh. And I'm just gonna I'm gonna lay it out here, okay? It's seven o'clock when the umpire says play ball. We're all pretty much the same. Doesn't matter what culture, how you were raised. We're all playing the game we love to play. And let's face it, if you make it to the major leagues, you've overcame a lot uh, getting there. It's a big, big jump from even AAA to the major leagues. We all know that. We evaluate baseball players our entire lives. But we've got to do a better job of, of, of interacting with one another uh, when I was a farm director, the very first speech I gave to the players uh, in the instructional league, and I said this, if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always gotten. If you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always gotten. And tell our children our worshiping together at all races, 
all economic backgrounds until they are playing sports together at the youth league level and the high school level, uh, until we are um, giving other people opportunities, I'm not going to be as optimistic because I don't know how it's going to change unless we see some of this change. I look at our game, Paz, and can you explain to me if you really understand what baseball means to a baseball player? Can you explain to me how round reduction even enters your mind? Yeah. Can you explain to me if you understand what baseball means to a baseball player, how you would consider a minor league contraction? And when we talked many years ago about getting rid of the draft and follow when only three general managers said, I don't want to get rid of the draft and follow, and they did it anyway. And we talked about how it's going to hurt the African-American baseball player. Well, why is it going to hurt the African-American baseball player? Well, because baseball, unfortunately, is almost becoming a country club sport. It, it takes finances to play it. Yeah. Um, and the effort when, when Gerard Dyson gets a chance to play and has to repeat rookie ball, when he catches up, he thrives. When Nick Heath gets a chance to catch up, he thrives. Baseball is not a game that allows you to take time off. It requires repetition. It requires a relentless focus on the fundamentals. You have to work at it and work at it. You need repetition, repetition. It's hard to develop beyond the level of competition. You need to face good competition to be a good player. And so we we have to, um, we, we can't be providing less opportunities and less rounds and less roster spots. And so when you get rid of the draft and follow and they say, well, where's the data? that says that the draft and follow is going to hurt the high ceiling, less experienced multi-athlete player who hasn't had a chance to, to, to perfect their skills like the players that play year round. Well, let me say this. If it hurts one player, it's one too many. Yeah. That's the mindset we have to have. We've got to come alongside of it. Look, it's, it's very simple. If you believe in people and you provide them opportunity and you keep giving them grace and you keep picking them up and you keep giving them opportunity, eventually they're going to believe in themselves and they're going to have the resources and the opportunity necessary to be able to, to play this game at a high level. Now I get it. There's only so many, there's only 30 major league teams and 26 men can on an active roster, but we've got to provide more and more, opportunity not less yeah no it's that's i it's 100 percent right and and that, that does make me want to shift gears just a little bit here because i want to talk about baseball and sort of what our hopes are for the future baseball such an important part of all of our lives uh us three and and you know dayton i I wrote a piece uh, last week about about something that you had said, and and it's something I want you to 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 expand upon here a little bit, if you can. Um, you know, I, my question about the game is how we watch out for the game, you know, and 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 how we bring baseball forward. We all know that baseball has some some real issues. Uh, that baseball is in some ways falling behind. Um, you know, we can talk about certainly the, 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 the lack of African-American athletes, uh, in baseball is it's a big deal. 
it's a big deal, you know, and I put, I put a list uh, together um, of what it was like when Bob and I were growing up and it was, all of our heroes were African-American players. I mean, the, right. I mean, the best players, you know, there were, there were plenty of great white players and plenty of great black players. And if you were a young African-American, you saw yourself in the game. You yeah. saw your own face in the game, the way that white people saw, you know, uh, that, that white kids see the, their own face in the game. Now the way that Latin kids see their own face in the game um, and that we're losing that we're losing that, but we're losing a lot of things in baseball. Dayton, when, when you look at the game and, and, you know, assuming we get through this sort of short term, uh, clumsiness or whatever you want to call what the heck is going on now where where they can't even figure out uh, a, a way to get back on the field from a money standpoint once we get beyond that where does baseball need to go well it's a great question and, and sometimes you got to break things down to build things up sure and and sometimes you know it, it's painful um to untangle things uh, it's hard uh, to uh, when you've got to get rid of a lot of the the mess, if you will. But I think we've got to be very transparent about things. I, I believe when you stop looking at this game from the eyes of your youth, you kind of lose your way. Mm-hmm. Baseball it does have a business side, but none of us fell in love with this game because the the business side of it. It yeah. is about the players. It's always been about the players, yeah. um, and we have to recognize that. Now, look, it's it's not my money. Um, these owners are really, really the owners are really smart. They do care greatly about the game. They wouldn't be owning a major league baseball team unless they 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 wanted to to see the game prosper and and thrive. Okay, but I think we just need to start getting back down to the grassroots and on why kids are attracted to this game to begin with. You know, we, we have the draft coming up in two days. We've been on multiple Zoom calls. I want to, I've been over on over 100 Zoom calls with players, okay? And one of my first questions is, who introduced you to baseball? Uh-huh. Why do you love this game? Well, no, I'm passionate about this game. Well, okay, passion is, is great, but passion's an emotion. Oftentimes it rises and falls based on what you're experiencing. Do you really love this game? And if you love this game, you love diversity. You, you love the fans. You've got to interact with the fans. The only reason you're going to inspire other people to play this game is you interact with the fans. And when you do interact with the fans, they want to know your story. And when they want to know your story, they they come to the ballpark. I was at a function about three off seasons ago, and um, I I after the after I spoke, you know, there were some people that wanted to interact on a more personal level. And this gentleman came up to me and he said, "You think you can get my daughter an autographed baseball?" And I said, well, "Of course I can." I said, "Who would you like me to? Uh, which whose signature would you like for me to get on the baseball?" I'm thinking they're going to say Maryfield, uh, Gordon. You know, whoever, right? And then he said, Mr. Ryan O'Hearn. And I said, Ryan O'Hearn, are you family friends with Ryan O'Hearn? <laughs> uh, no, my, my daughter's always liked Ryan O'Hearn. Um, you know, after batting practice, he came over and spent time with her and talked with her and awesome. got his picture taken with him. And, and now 
uh, Ryan O'Hearn is my daughter's favorite player. And so it's, it's one interaction at a time. And that's why I, I go back to what I said earlier. We come, up, we come alongside our African-American community and we introduce them to baseball and we take our time with them one player at a time. Eventually it's going to change. It will change because I, I've seen it. I got a letter the other day from um, uh, a young player who's graduating from high school, an African-American male who we've been working with him since he was nine years old. And he's, wow. he's graduating, he's stuck with baseball, and he's going to be uh, a pitcher at Johnson County Community College. And those types of things um, need to happen, and, and, and they, they can happen. We just have to have that heart for the next generation. No doubt. No doubt. Bob, by the way, when, when Dayton was sitting there saying the first thing he asks players uh, is who introduced you to this game, that remind you of anybody? Oh, that was, that was Buck. That was Buck. Every, that was... right? Every person he would meet. Yeah. Who took you to your first game? Yeah. Do you remember your first game? Remember yeah. that? No, no question. That, that was it. And, and it was always genuine and he wanted to know because he, 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 he always drew that parallel. And I think he could, it was so very relatable for him. And, and it speaks to some of the things that we have to see happen again within our community. And, I, and, and that's why I do in every opportunity I get, I applaud the Kansas City Royals and, and specifically Dayton for the creation of this Urban Youth Academy yes. right here at Historic 18th and Vine. Uh, it is such an important part of the growth of the Historic 18th and Vine Jazz District and to have the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum essentially attached to it where it goes back, Joe, to what you said, where you can see people who look just like you who played this game as well as anyone ever played this game. But as I so oftentimes say, they not only played the game, they owned teams. They were managers and coaches and traveling secretaries, team positions. They fulfilled every aspect of the business of this game as well. And, and so you do have to see yourself in, in this role. And, and, and I talk about it a lot. You know, the thing that we love about baseball is its tradition. Yep. Mm. The thing that has hurt baseball is its tradition. You exactly. know, so we got, we've got to do this a little bit differently now to make sure, uh, number one, create the opportunity. Make sure that there's not this economic gap that is preventing kids from at least having an opportunity to experience our game. The thing that saddens me the most is that the days of sandlot baseball is a thing of the past. Yeah. You know, and, and, and again, I tell people, I don't want to be right on this, but I think I am. You know, uh, we all grew up playing in the sandlot. And we all grew up playing in an environment where you didn't have to have nine kids on a team. Exactly you right. made your rules up as you went along. And if you hit the ball in Mrs. Jones' yard, you were out. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and, and that's the way this game was. And, and you just, you mimicked whoever, you know, Henry Aaron was my guy. And so when we played Sandlot Baseball, everybody already knew Bob going to be Henry Aaron. Ain't no question about that. And you, so you became your favorite ball player and you played and it was aspirational in nature. Yep. And when I look around and I see what we have in, in terms of the Hispanic participation in our sport, even the growing Asian participation in our sport, 
I think it has a lot to do because they have their own leagues in their countries. Yeah. And so kids can now look at these opportunities, whereas in our country, the role of the African-American player has been so diminished that it has lost some of its luster in the community and we got to help it regain it. And, and, and so, you know, that academy and subsequently the other academies in this country are so very vitally important. Guys, I had the opportunity to go down to Vero Beach where uh, baseball was doing an elite camp and has been doing an elite camp for the last several years. And they're uh, at Dodger Town. Mm-hmm. And number one, to walk there on the grounds of Dodger Town gave me chills anyway. <laughs> you, know, ghost, you know, the ghost of Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella and all these great stars who, you know, Branch Rickey created that environment so that his black players would have a place to be safe in Florida. And seeing all these these very talented young kids playing this game still gives me hope. Sure. But again, it's going to take that collective effort and a commitment that it is important to see urban kids in our sport. And and again, I think we want baseball is the most diverse major sport of them all. You know, when you start to look at the ethnic the ethnic background of people from so many different. Uh, regions of the globe, parts of the globe, sure. you know, we've got to get this African-American participation, I think, at a heightened level. And, and my hopes are that we will. And I hope the Negro Leagues Museum continue to be at, play an important role in that effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, something you had said, Dayton, that really struck me because I just haven't heard many people talk about this. You know, people talk about players in the minor leagues and coaches in the minor leagues and, and so on in very sort of, I don't, I don't know exactly how to put it. Just, just plain terms. You know, they talk about them as being prospects or they talk about them as being, you know, potential future coaches or managers in the big leagues. It's all focused on the big leagues. And you talked about how important these people are uh, and how important these teams are in spreading this sport throughout America, to spreading this from community to community. And and I've really not heard that many people talk about it that way. Well, but pause. We, we all, we all, you know, I, I made that statement and 15 years ago, like you wouldn't even, you would never make a statement like that because everybody understood it. Yeah. They already knew it. You're right. And, and um, that's, that's just been kind of the, um, I guess the frustrating aspect of this, you know, and the one thing that reminds me in leadership, there's warning signs every single day. There's warning signs that a relationship may be going sour. There's warning signs that maybe um, your your front office is starting uh, to um, lose harmony. Your major league baseball team has a crack in its foundation. I mean, there's warning signs there and you, you've got to constantly be on the alert for those warning signs. And so these warning signs, as I said, have been kind of creeping in. And for whatever reason, because our television ratings are good or we're making money uh, at the major league level and attendance is high, we've just kind of lost sight of the foundation. And then when you have experienced times like we're experiencing now in in COVID-19 and so forth, that's when the crack in your foundation um, gets revealed. 
and that's and, and that's just the latest example truthfully pause i mean i think we've we've seen this happening time and time again and and with our you know so for example and you and i've talked about this you know when Insta- i was never for instant replay right. and you can say well why shouldn't we use instant we have the technology doesn't make any sense and i understand that argument but you know what um I thought it would take the emotion out of the game. And I, I felt that part of part of the making of a baseball player and the refining of a baseball team to go to the next level is that you have to overcome things throughout the game, throughout your career. Sometimes, you know what, you're not going to be able to strike Derek Jeter out on a certain – because the umpire is just not going to ring him up. And you know yeah. what, that's just the way it goes. And you're going to have to get better. And sometimes the umpire does miss a call and you just have to overcome it and you have to get better. The, those That's some of the fuel and emotion a human being needs to overcome certain certain things. And so you know, I like what Joe Madden says all the time. You know, Joe Madden says, you know, perfection is boring. Yeah. We're, we're trying to make it perfect. And and, uh, and you talk about somebody who loves the game and, and has a, a, a deep passion for, for the game and the history of the game and, 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 and those that are in it and make it strong and, and, and so forth. But, I mean, w- when we all grew up, the area scout was the most important part of the organization. When an area scout showed up, he was the expert baseball man in that community. And uh, he had uh, so much prestige and so much um, uh, regard. Uh, and, you know, we, we've withered away at that fundamental as well. And so, again, whenever – all the great coaches that you, that both of us, all three of us know and have studied, when things go bad, the team goes through a losing streak, you have a tough year, you go back to the fundamentals. There's a reason Coach Self starts off the year in practice with the fundamentals. The reason Andy Reid starts the year off with the fundamentals and Mike Matheny and starts off with the fundamentals. And I just think we've got to get back to the fundamentals of this game. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a hundred percent right. I, I think the fundamentals of this game is going is digging deep into uh, into youth baseball. It's digging deep into college baseball, high school baseball, minor league baseball, JUCO baseball. Um, that's just where the game grows, and 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 it's not growing there. I mean, you know, we're seeing it. We're seeing college teams, uh, you know, drop their baseball. Uh, we're seeing, you know, obviously the the whole talk of a contraction in the minor leagues. Bob talks about sandlot baseball going away and and travel baseball so expensive and and such a such a you know commitment that's a it's you can't dabble in baseball anymore. I mean, when all of us were growing up, you played all the sports because you could, and and now you've you've got to specialize at a different age. All of these things are not going to reverse we're not going to be able to reverse them so for both of you but we'll start with you Dayton what can be done what can tangibly be done now uh, to sort of you know dig in and 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 bring baseball back a little bit well one of the things we need to do as I mentioned before we've got to provide more opportunity for players to play we need more leagues we need more more opportunity more roster spots. Um, if they're not affiliated with the team, Major League Baseball needs to control these leagues and provide those opportunities. We've got to be very aggressive in getting kids opportunity. You know, one of the things 
pause is, you know, we used to have open tryout camps for area scouts would have open yeah. tryout camps all over the country and kids, hundreds of kids would show up to these tryout camps and they'd try out for the major league baseball team in their city or, or their, their region or whatever it would be. And, um, kids would just flock to, to, to try to get a look and to have a scout evaluate them. And so we quit doing that with the showcase circuit and, and, and we've got to get back again, like I said before, to the fundamentals, but we've got to have, we've got to have coaches and moms and dads at the youth league level in every city, uh, in all the urban core, the suburban parts of our, our, our country and the rural parts of our country that love this game, that can go and inspire people to want to play this game. We need resources. Uh, we need to set up uh, leagues and uh, to make sure that every kid can have a glove to make sure there's ample equipment. And we've got, again, leaders, community leaders that are committed to growing kids as leaders through the game of baseball and softball. Softball is a big part of, you know, one of the things with the Urban Youth Academy we learned was, you know, there wasn't really any organized softball uh, in the high schools for, you know, our young women in the inner cities. And, and we need them playing softball because they're going to be the ones taking their kids to practice yeah. uh, in the future. And uh, we, we need to in, introduce them to softball and baseball. And, and, um, and so that's, that's something that we have, we have worked hard to, to try to uh, bring about those opportunities as well. Yeah. You know, I, I, I had not thought about the trial camps, the, 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 the funny thing about trial camps and you've, you've held many of them. You're almost, I mean, the, the percentage of people who, who get signed at a trial camp is always been minuscule. It's always yeah. been tiny. That's, that's never, I mean, of course it's the point every so often you you run into one, you find somebody in a trial camp and, and, and it works out. Um, but the, the point has always been how many people, you know, our age can say, oh yeah, you know, I, I once tried out for the Yankees or the Dodgers. Well, you're right. The, you're yeah. right. And so I remember, well, I remember one of the tryout camps I went to, I was 20 years old. Joe Consoli was a scout for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I think at one time Joe Consoli had like five or six guys actually on the active roster with the Pirates that huh. he'd signed for like a thousand dollars. Amazing statistic. And, and Joe Consoli would talk for 45 minutes to an hour about the Pittsburgh Pirates. He'd talk about Roberto Clemente. He would talk about Willie Stargell. I mean, he would talk about all these players. He'd talk about baseball, and he would sell the game. And when, when he was done talking, we all wanted to work in baseball. There was yeah. no doubt in our mind we, did, we wanted to, 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 to pursue this game in a loving and passionate and, and a committed way. And so they are, I learned, and so when I became a scout, I realized that one of my, one of my roles is to be a salesman for this game in my region. I had a responsibility, yes, to sell the Atlanta Braves, but to sell baseball. And you don't think I love having those camps and talking about the Atlanta Braves in 1994, 95, and 96 when I was having those camps? Probably pretty fun, actually. I mean, come on. I mean, I love, I love talking about Hank Aaron and David Justice and Marquise Grissom and, and Ronnie Gant. And I mean, I can go on and on about those players. Yeah, yeah that's pretty great. All right, Bob, what, what are we doing? What are we going to do to save baseball? What are we going to do to push baseball forward? Well, you know, there, I think there are some things that I wish and hope we could do, particularly from the collegiate level, Joe, 
Yeah. Uh, I, I wish that we could find ways in which we could get more money uh, for scholarship opportunities for our game. Uh, and because I think when we start to try and compete to get some of these good athletes to play this game and they're getting to a certain level in the game, but unfortunately when they get to the high school level, the other sports are pulling them away. Sure. And, and, and I think part of the reasoning is the fact that that parent who is hoping that their child will get that opportunity to get their college education paid for in full, you know, can look at basketball and football as those opportunities. And, and I wish there was a way that we could level, level the playing field with these, with, with colleges in terms of scholarship dollars and resources that would be made available. I think it'll make it a whole lot more attractive for kids to stay in this game. Uh, we obviously got to do a much better job of promoting our game. And it goes back to what Dayton was just referencing. You know, we've got to get, you know, more visibility for, those African-American ball players who are in the game, but I think for baseball players in general to be in these communities, continuing to pump up our, our sport and promote our sport. And, and again, as an institution that's dedicated to the preservation of this, of the history of this game, I think it's important too, that we be a part of this in promoting yeah. our game, you know, mm -hmm. and using the history to promote our game and helping them see themselves in our game. Uh, understanding that they too have a proud legacy in this sport. And, and for me, it's about challenging the African-American community to make baseball important to them again. Because as you both know, once upon a time, it was very important yes. to the African-American community. And somewhere along the line, the African-American community became somewhat detached from this game. And there are obviously a lot of varying factors of, of why that occurred. But it has to become, when Dayton talks about community leaders, I, I look specifically at community leaders within the African-American community, that this becomes important to them, that we see more of the churches and, and more of the smaller African-American businesses investing and reinvesting in our sport again. And I think that's something that the museum is is anxiously looking to help be a part of that charge. So again, the visibility of our sport in, in the urban core is vitally important. You know, hopefully as we start to see more of these African-American players who have been drafted and are in the minor leagues now, and, and hopefully they make it to the major leagues uh, in the next several years, I think we'll slowly but surely start to see this this trend reverse itself, I hope. But again, I think, you know, we've got to have some players that people look at and say, I want to be that. I want to do that. Uh, I was showing, I don't know where we were, but Dayton, we were showing the highlight. And it must have been in 2015 uh, when when the, when the Royals were playing Toronto in the playoffs. And, and and Lorenzo Kane scores from first on a single. Mm -hmm. oh, it's amazing. You know, I mean, what is more exci exciting than that? Yeah. Nothing. You know, nothing. Absolutely <laughs> nothing. You know, it's still, even today, that's five years later, and it still gets me pumped up. You no, know? <laughs> what a feeling. That's a feeling I'll never forget for a lot of reasons. But it was just such a such an athletic play and just such oh, a... When he slides in the home and there's a pop-up slide and the joint and, and it permeated through the team and 
even in hostile territory, everybody, you know, the raw fans were excited. You would tell me we don't need that in baseball. That's we right. absolutely do. Of course we do. do. You know, Paul, the other thing I would say, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of junior college baseball for a lot of reasons, but I think bringing back the draft and follow where we, we draft more players and we send them to junior colleges. And if the junior colleges don't want to work with us, we need to set up our own community colleges, if you will. Carlos Beltran has done it very well with his academies in Puerto Rico. I get it. It's geared towards high school players um, in Puerto Rico, the Carlos Beltran Academy, where kids go to school they and, and they, they take the rigorous academics, but they're also there to play baseball. He comes alongside them in a very specific and strategic way. We can do the same thing here. Education is so um, uh, accommodating. I mean, we have so many different avenues. Academics work with through distance education and classes online. I mean, we can we can do this. I mean, there's a lot of different things that we can do and and set up our own baseball academies, not just for high school kids, not just um, for the like we have here in Kansas City at the UIA. But let's let's do an extension beyond high school. Let's set up our own junior college program and where we can give kids a head start and, and give them a cost, uh, a cost effective uh, education. And, uh, and again, support, support them in ways where they can get an education and also continue to play baseball, similar to what Mr. K did many, many years ago with the sure. academy. And, and we're, we're, we're looking hard about bringing that back, that concept back. Um, well, the, the academy was amazing. I mean, for those of you that don't know, uh, Ewing Kaufman, uh, when he bought the Royals, said, why don't we create an academy where, with players who are, who are uh, talented but maybe don't have a great baseball background or maybe they haven't played the sport that much, or we're going to just, we'll teach them the game and have them go to school and numerous players. Uh, obviously the best of them being Frank white, who has uh, whose numbers retired by the Kansas city Royals came out of that Academy, but you all Washington came out of that Academy. I think there were eight players who, who played in the major leagues, but beyond that, I mean, that's, that's always just the high end beyond that. You have all of these, these players who do exactly what you talk about, Dayton, that they, they didn't make it, but they went back to their community having played baseball. And they're they're so much readier to coach, you know, youth baseball or 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 be involved as a, you know, in a college or a junior college or a high school program and 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 can bring the game around to so much. You know, it was it was something that just sort of struck me, and I'm sure other people have made this point before. But but as I was thinking about this and 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 focusing on this, this point struck me that in the 1980s and early 90s, the three greatest athletes, perhaps of of the time, pure athlete, uh, were Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, and Michael Jordan. Were probably the three greatest athletes. All three of them loved baseball. All three of them wanted to play baseball, even though they were better at other sports for all three. Uh, and I, I had personal, obviously there's a close connection between the Royals and Bo Jackson. Uh, I had personal connections with Deion Sanders and Deion loved baseball. I mean, baseball to him was, he, he was a different person on the baseball diamond because of how much he, he respected, loved, enjoyed the game. He grew up loving the game. Um, and I think 
always kind of regretted to some point that he wasn't a great baseball player rather than a great football player. Michael Jordan, of course, we all know that story. I mean, that's not that long ago when mm-hmm. baseball was was absolutely the most exciting game so many great athletes can imagine. It just feels like going back to that is so crucial. You're right. You're right. I think the Academy and John Sherman is, is the owner to support that type of vision to once again, support that type of vision. That's cool. That's really cool. All right. Last question for you both. Let's just talk about very sort of your own feelings. Um, Obviously, we're waiting. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring in any way. Uh, but we're waiting for baseball to sort of figure things out. Dayton, I know you're sort of in the in the middle of a lot of different things, but sort of your both gut feeling. Uh, will there be baseball uh, this year? Uh, will there be a season of some sort? And what would you like that season to look like if, if you could? And, and obviously it's, it's difficult to, to imagine because we all know that, that, that the, the virus is, is very much out there and, and uh, uh, we don't have any idea where that's going to go and, and so on and so forth. But what is your optimism level, Bob, of baseball coming back? And if, and if baseball does come back, what kind of season would you like to see? Well, I, I just, again, and maybe this, here we go again with the internal optimist or the eternal <laughs> optimist. I, I think baseball, we, we got to play baseball. And, and, I, and I think we will. Uh, I think it's too important at this time in, in, in our lives uh, with everything that has happened with COVID in particular, uh, that baseball be part of the healing process uh, along a number of lines. And so I do think it's going to happen um, you know, obviously, I think it's always going to happen inside of empty stadiums, but that's okay. You know, uh, and now this is the fan in me. It just gives me something else. I finally be able to watch live sports again. And, and so, you know, that would make me happy. And I think it would make a whole lot of other people happy. Uh, and I know the players want to play. And, and, and I've got to think the power structure of baseball wants to see this game played again. So I've got to believe that there will be a reasonable solution to uh, the gap that is right now between them, uh, that it can be resolved and we can get the sport being played again. Um, I'm looking forward to getting, you know, whether it's going to happen with teams coming into our city. I hope it does. And then that's for self, pure selfish reasons, because, I, you know, I've got high hopes of getting these guys down to see the Negro Leagues Museum. Sure. And, so yeah, there's a level of self-serving that comes along <laughs> with that, admittedly. Uh, but I'm very optimistic that we will play baseball. Dayton, where, where, where are you right now? Well, very similar to Bob. I mean, he couldn't have said it any better. I mean, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we will play. I don't have any inside information as we said here today. Um, but I do know in speaking to our players, they desperately want to get out there and play and, and speaking to our owner, John Sherman, um, he feels like there is a compromise that can take place and we will be playing baseball. And so obviously I wish it would be more games, but we got to play the hand that we're dealt. Um, I I do like the fact that the playoffs uh, are going to open up to possibly more teams that fits with where we are in the phase of our rebuild um, and gives our players a a lot more hope. And I think it's the fans uh, would appreciate that as well. But I I feel like we're going to play pause. You know more than, 
than Bob and I right now. You, you've got more inside track to this than probably we do. Well, let me let me let me give you two points on this. One from from here's here's what I honestly believe, I, and and I don't want to bash anybody in in baseball because it's it's it doesn't feel right. Um, everybody I talk to in the game is with you both, and and they are adamant that not only there will be baseball, but there has to be baseball. That the game really really cannot. Uh, cannot afford a year, a lost year, especially if it's a lost year for be you know that there's something they could have controlled. Up to this point, this is beyond everybody's control, and I think that's easy to forget. This is this was not anybody's fault. This is this is a a once in a century virus, uh, you know, taking uh, you know, killing more than one hundred and ten thousand people and and shutting down an economy and all of that. So so. That's why they're not playing. So I think that baseball could not and cannot afford uh, to, to to lose this season, especially if it comes down to just details and and money and 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 nobody nobody will understand and nobody should understand and 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 so so I don't know if I'm optimistic. I don't know if that's exactly the right word because I'm scared to death that 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 baseball will will drive off the cliff uh we saw it in 94 and and i didn't think that was possible i i just honestly didn't think there was any way that we could lose a world series um the way we did in 1994 so uh but i'm hopeful and and i do believe the cooler heads prevail and i do believe that that at the end of the day uh everybody wants the same thing but here's my second point and I'm, i'd be interested to hear what both of you have to say i wrote this the other day I believe that while the regular season is important, um, we're not going to have a real regular season this year. This is this is uh, something that uh, uh, you know is beyond everybody's control, and 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 realistically, they're not going to be fans in the stands, certainly at the start, and it's going to be just a different kind of year. So I want to see a different kind of baseball season, and I wrote this the other day, and I really believe this. I think baseball should have a season to, you know, however long that is to, to seed everybody. And then baseball should have a once in a, in a history, once in a lifetime, never repeated uh, college world series format, baseball playoffs where all 30 teams are involved. And of course, you know, it's different if you're, if you're one of the bottom 16 or 14 teams, uh, it's going to be, you, you've got to, you've got to come out of a 17 bracket. I had, I have a whole, brackets set up in my mind um and if you're one of the top eight teams you get in automatically you you're just playing for seeding and and you have a a a basically a month-long celebration of baseball uh with everybody playing the college world series rules so with double eliminations and 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 you have them in in pods where you know you you have six regionals or whatever it is and I just think it would be so fun and so different and it would it would it would sort of eliminate the fear I think of people having that the season needs legitimacy. That I hear that from people, well if it's not a number of games it's not going to be legitimate. This season is going to be different than any season ever because we're in a different stage than any season ever, any year ever. The country is going through something uh both through through uh you know through sickness through uh through the economy 
and honestly through sort of an awakening uh, uh, for for justice that is crossing this country. We are in a different place, and I would love to see baseball embrace the difference and try something completely different and new and wild. And I would love to see a 30-team round-robin playoff experience that's that would just be completely different and new and, and something for people to, to look at. So, so that's my big idea. <laughs> I would vote yes for your proposal. There you I, go. There I you, would, go. You, got, you got my vote for whatever it's worth. <laughs> oh, Scott, wow. Scott Sharp, Scott Sharp, about 10 days after we went spring training and it was rather apparent this was going to be a prolonged shutdown. He came up with it. Instead of March Madness, we call it October Madness. And yep. he had presented a, a very similar uh, format to uh, to John Sherman as well. And I think that, Paz, I, I think that's creative and I think it's fun. It's new. Certainly the fans would have some interest in, in uh, something like that, I would think. And um, they'd love it. I think they'd yeah. love it, you know. Yeah. And sure, there would be some that say, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't like – it was so what nothing is like it was you know <laughs> we'll hope for 2021 you know to 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 start feeling like something we're we're familiar with but 2020 is its own year and mm-hmm. and i think all of us uh you know want to stay safe i think all of us want to uh open our eyes in a in a different way than we than we have before um and I just think that you're you're if you're still trying to cling to to the old you know thoughts and old times, uh, this is not the year to do that. You know, and that's this is this is not the year to look backward in, in my mind. So I hope they do something fun like that. I think that would be great. Dayton, Bob, I can't thank you enough for for taking the time to join me here. Thanks, Bob. Dayton, thank you, man. It's good to good to hear you. Looking forward to seeing you. Likewise, my friend.